Hello and welcome back to the Super Jump Podcast, a podcast where we dive deep into the art and science of video games. My name is Reza and I'm joined by Tristan and our guests for this episode, Brandon and Josh. Hello. 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 Uh, Brandon and Josh are both contributors to the Super Jump magazine and we're pretty excited to have you folks here for today's episode. Brandon, Josh, do you guys want to intro yourself super quick to the audience and folks that are listening to us? Yeah, I've been writing for Super Jump for a couple years now. Um, I'm a creative fiction writer. Um, obviously, I play a lot of video games, mostly RPGs and indie stuff, um, some horror as well. I live in the Pacific Northwest of the United States. Uh, yeah. Very cool. How did you get started with Super Jump? Um, I think the first article I wrote was about Final Fantasy XIV. Mm-hmm. I had been writing like a couple articles on Medium, um, just in, about generalized stuff. And then I found Super Jump and wrote something about how much Final Fantasy XIV meant to me and the player base and things like that. And it was well received. And that was back when Super Jump was on Medium. And I was able to see um, all like my statistics really easily. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I wrote a couple articles after that. Like I wrote a vagrant story one that was like really well was received. And then I was like, Oh, well the community is really great. Um, I can write like really like in depth essay style, uh, stuff, which is what, like, I don't really enjoy writing reviews so much. Like I, I do, but I'd rather like talk about like in depth stuff, which is what super jump is known for. So it was just like a really good space for that. Very cool. What about you, Josh? How did you get started? What's your background in? Um, my background is I've been working, like analyzing and covering video games now for it's going to be a decade this year. So I feel oh, sure old <laughs> right now. That's so cool. <laughs> so I started this with my website, Game Wisdom, and then that grew into my YouTube channel, the same name back in 2017, 2018. And basically what I like to do is I talk very analytically about game design and the game industry. So a lot of my stuff is less, I think, aimed at like the general consumer and more people who really want to learn more about design and what it means to make a good game or just make any game in particular. So I've been interviewing developers now for the last decade. I've written several books on game design, the Game Design Deep Dive series, and I got started with Super Jump. I think it was like, I want to say like 2018. No, I want to say like 2019, uh, 2020. It's, again, time is like very weird <laughs> when it comes to the game <laughs> industry. Like we all forget how long it's been. Yeah. But um, I was writing pieces about basically all matter of game design topics. And James really enjoyed kind of these posts that aren't really like the usual stuff you see from uh, someone who covers video games even my reviews i typically focus more on design than trying to give you know an 8 out of 10 9 out of 10 Mm -hmm. and since then i've been posting a lot of my design heavy stuff over on super jump and on medium and just trying to i guess like keep growing when it comes to covering the game industry and educating people on design that's super interesting. Yeah, I, especially because so much has been changing in the industry over the last couple of years, uh, both mm-hmm. in terms of the balance of uh, design versus narrative, which is going to be really the the focal point for, for today's discussion. So having a lot of your insight there is going to be super interesting. Cool. So for today's episode, uh, we wanted to dive deeper into a phenomenon that's kind of been happening over, I'd say, like the last five, 10 years in the video gaming industry, um, relating to the prevalence of narrative and uh, gameplay in video games in general, and how the balance between those two has kind of shifted over the years. Um, I think there's been a lot of really notable video games in uh, you know the last five, 10 years that have come out that are known more for their narrative than for their gameplay elements. And so it's kind of spurred a broader discussion in the community about what it means for something to be a video game, about how those two should be balanced out between each other, what people really value. And I think it's also having, you know, uh, effects downstream uh, in terms of game design, in terms of uh, the way that video games are being adapted into other content. Um, and so we thought we'd kind of dive into that, share some of our thoughts and, um, you know, hopefully some insights into uh, into where this is kind of heading. Um, 
Brandon and Josh, you both are here because you've both have kind of written about this a little bit for Super Jump um, with slightly different uh, angles. And so I guess that's a pretty good place to kind of start off. Um, Brandon, you wrote an article about a video game called 13 Sentinels and uh, why it had kind of like a unique balance between narrative and gameplay. Um, maybe you can tell the audience a little bit about, you know, like what kind of spurred that article and, and you know, a TLDR of what it's really about, if that makes sense. Uh, sure. Yeah, 13 Sentinels came out, uh, I believe it was the end of 2019 now. It was actually, it came out very close to Death Stranding, which was a really interesting year in terms of like game narrative, because they were both very different from what uh, we're traditionally used to. But 13 Sentinels is a very much like um, dedicated science fiction, like magnum opus from um, from George Kamatani, who uh, his company Vanillaware has done a lot of like really beautiful side scrollers. Like they did Muramasa, the Demon Blade, and um, they did um, Odin Sphere and like different games like that. But uh, 13 Sentinels is different because it's very heavily split between being a visual novel and being an RPG. And instead of doing the like traditional uh, visual novel thing where it's just like endless foray of story or the <laughs> RPG thing of um, like dungeon battle cinema, dungeon battle cinema over and over again. Yeah. Um, from the title screen, it literally has two uh, game modes. The one of them's called um, Remembrance Mode, I think. And the other one is called... Um, but anyways, uh, the, the game is literally split so that you can progress it however you want to. So you can do like nothing but the story bits if you want, and then go back and do nothing but the gameplay. Oh, very and, cool. Yeah. And the gameplay is this weird mix between um, like mech RTS and uh, tower defense simulator. And you have these mechs that you can completely level up and control that are attached to the characters that are in the story. But at any point you can decide, okay, I want to do a couple of mech battles or I'm burnt out in the story right now and I, I want to swap back and forth. And even though the battles are integrated into the story and affect what's going on, it gives the player 100% control over the pace that they want to conquer the game in. So... Uh, if, if you get like burnt out from too much story or you get burnt out from too much gameplay, you can literally decide what order you progress in so that just doesn't happen. Um, and giving the player that level of control I thought was fascinating. It, it, it was really similar to like, um, like choose your own adventure style books from forever ago where like the pace of it and the outcome of it was up to you. Mm -hmm. And even though um, the, it's called 13 Sentinels because it has over a dozen playable characters that uh, all intertwine at three different time periods. So it has this really big, very like uh, editing this game must have been a nightmare just because the, the, the narrative scope is incredible but it locks out different characters if you progress too far into one so that um, you never like see a spoiler or a cliffhanger without context or anything like that. So you can not only choose when to do uh, the visual novel elements versus the gameplay elements, but you can also choose which order you play the characters in. Interesting. Yeah, so every player that's ever played this game has had a very different experience that's ultimately led into the same narrative. But it, it, it just makes a really, really curious like gameplay element. Like in the article that I wrote, I also brought up the Zero Escape games, which are these like visual novels with puzzle-style escape room elements that have the same thing where you can play it in different orders, even though the narrative ultimately ends up in one place. Um, it can definitely affect your experience. And I've noticed like when it comes to like recommending a lot of my favorite games to people, especially when it comes to like huge RPGs and stuff, people will get burnt out and almost always they get burnt out because the pacing of the game. Um, it's like when you have a TV show you really love and you're like, just make it past season one. If you can just make it past season one, then you'll <laughs> love it. And I know we all hate hearing that over and over again because it's such like a bad cliche. It's like, okay, if this is really so good, why can't it be good from the get-go? Yeah, yeah. 
And 13 Sentinels not only is like, you know, filled with some fantastic writing and constant cliffhangers and stuff like that, but it literally has a preventative measure to keep you from getting burnt out or finding that the pace isn't to your liking or, you know, et cetera. So it's just like that level of originality was impressive. I had a quick question. Are the two modes at like from the start menu or is it like when you pick the levels? I'm just curious if there's like a default mode that developers want you to take. So when you select your um, save file, it shows you multiple modes. One of them is will take you directly into um, sort of a character selection screen. And that's where the story plays out. And the other mode takes you into the customization screen that lets you play all these different like mech battles. And then there's another there's another tertiary screen for like um, lore and a library and characters and stuff like that. But it's almost like it's almost like being able to micromanage the story as the player. Because every time you know, every time I started up my PlayStation, went back in and played again instead of just like jumping straight back into the story or whatever, um, it, it incentivizes you to maybe like read more about this, like out of context thing that was glossed over in the story. Or um, even some of those mech fights will have conversations between the characters um, that can really like give some color to what's going on. And 13 Sentinels is just complicated by itself because it takes place in three different eras Um it takes place in feudal Japan, modern day, and the future. And the characters are constantly like swapping out between those eras and uh, rejoining. And it, it's just like, like I said before, like I don't really understand how they edited it so flawlessly and got it to work together because by all rights, it probably should have been a giant mess. Um, but George Kamatani said to, he, he was very appreciative by how much people enjoyed the game. Like Vanillaware's games have always been pretty niche, but, um, the reaction and the sales for this game, they're, they're meager compared to most games, but very good for this type of game. But he said, um, basically don't expect this level of game from them ever again, because it was just, it was too much like enjoy it, love it. But, um, moving forward, they probably don't have the capacity to, to do this um, just because of its scope. Yeah, I can imagine that's a big disincentive uh, mm -hmm. on the game developer side to do anything similar to this. I'm curious, like between, uh, I, I don't know if you've talked with other people that have played this game as well, or if the company's ever like published stats, but do you did you lean towards one style of play versus the other at all while you were playing it? Do you know if other folks leaned toward one or the other, or was there a lot of going back and forth while while you were working your way through the game? Um, I a good friend of mine was playing it almost exactly the same time I was, and we were sort of like comparing notes without spoiling anything. But because I'm I'm definitely like an old schoolish gamer that's used to those sort of like grindy RPGs, so the balance of of gameplay and a narrative, I was really tempted to play like a couple characters and then a couple battles and just go back and forth. And I know my buddy who he experiences games much differently than me. He would definitely play like a ton of the battles and then a ton of the story because he wanted to experience whatever the other side was like withholding from him. Yep. Um, yeah. So it, it just made it really interesting, especially because like it was one of those games where even though we were both playing at the same time, we couldn't go, oh, can you believe this just happened? Because I was like, no, because I haven't I haven't done that character yet or I haven't reached that moment yet. Or it, it, it's, it was just like fascinating to have that sort of like, I don't know, uh, back to the future, like wink, winking and nodding between uh characters and saying like oh that's why this character said this or that's why and and it's uh george kamatani has come out and said that he's a very big fan of basically like all science fiction ever which is kind of really what shows in 13 sentinels because i don't think there's something it hasn't referenced like it it references like <laughs> et and uh you know stuff that's like not just like star wars and things like that but like deeper uh older like science fiction tropes and things oh i found it the two modes were destruction mode and remembrance mode but um even with all that complication the game ended up only being like it wasn't even 40 hours long it was only like 35 i think even even with it um split up like that and like your mileage may vary obviously and it's filled with a lot of like um anime tropes and and mech tropes and stuff like that but it also has like 
a pretty prescient story about, you know, modern day issues and, and philosophy and stuff. And it was just like really, really engaging. Yeah, very interesting. I, it sounds like in general, this is a game that is able to, uh, it doesn't lean towards one area in particular, right? Like it's not all in on narrative. It's not all in on gameplay at the at the cost of each other. I think it's like unique in that it allows that level of flexibility. Yeah, and it's one of those games that like, I played it the same year as Disco Elysium and it's it's kind of like that one. one. Yeah, and I, it's just, Thirteen Sentinels has been one of those games that in any time a conversation comes up about video game narrative, every time I'm just like evangelizing the hell out of this game and just being like, play it. If you haven't played it, <laughs> experience it. Because it, it's, I don't even know what else to compare it to. Yeah, you sold me on it a little bit. I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> kind of curious. It's on, it's on discount right now for 35 bucks, which on uh, on uh, Nintendo is a pretty rare event to ever happen. So yeah, it's, it's really cool, too. I, I would like to double dip on it and get it on uh, the Switch at some point because I originally played it on uh, PlayStation. But I'm sure like the coziness of, of the Switch, you'd be able to even engage with the story a little more. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's interesting that we've called out the fact that this is an example of a game where it's balanced. I think like one of the things that we wanted to talk about was whether um, the industry has leaned towards one or, or the other of these priorities too much over the last like five, 10 years, right? Mm-hmm. I think, Josh, you've written about this a little bit in your article around prestige video games um, and whether like AAA video games are kind of heading in that direction a bit too much. Can you maybe, one, even explain to listeners what is a prestige video game and then kind of share your thesis or premise a little bit there? Mm-hmm. Sure. So in my opinion, when we talk about kind of prestige games, these are titles that typically tend to focus overly on narrative to, as I said in my article, the detriment of the actual gameplay or the playability of a game. And we can see this in titles that tend to have this emphasis on trying to, I guess, move the player towards the major story beats or the major kind of narrative. And the gameplay kind of feels like it's being strung along or it's not really meshing well. In my article, I mentioned the game, I mentioned games like uh, Somerville, uh, God of War, the Tomb Raider reboots. Even we go as far back as something like Uncharted which Uncharted is always brought up in examples of this, as this game that's supposed to be, hey, we're telling this fun and lighthearted story of adventure while Nathan Drake is headshotting people and throwing (laughs) grenades into groups of uh, random soldiers. And it always brings up that topic that I know every game developer loves to hear, and that's a ludo-narrative dissonance. (laughs) This idea that, again, like what is happening with the narrative or the story is not quite... I guess, working with the gameplay. Mm-hmm. Like, you can't tell, you can't say in a game that, hey, Laura Croft is depressed and she's suffering PTSD and, you know, she's not supposed to be strong. And then in a next scene, she is, again, like, jumping around, shooting people with arrows and using that grappling or that climbing hook <laughs> to mm-hmm. disembowel people. <laughs> but from the independent space... We can we kind of see it from, and I kind of described it as if the AAA goes for kind of the blockbuster, the Oscar noms, indies sometimes tend to focus on like the art house projects, games that feel more like you're watching a movie than you're actually participating in the game itself. And one of the big examples that I brought up, and this is one that I think kind of shows this point to some extent, was 12 Minutes. 12 Minutes, I believe, came out last year. As I said earlier, like time is all messed up when it comes to the game industry. But 12 Minutes was a game that was highly publicized before it was released. It had uh, William Dafoe in it, uh, James McAvoy. It was going to be this, you know, next big wave of, you know, cinematic te- uh, storytelling in video games. And when it came out, a lot of people bounced off of it. One, because the gameplay just, it felt more like, almost like an experiment or like a proof of concept. And then the story itself went places that I won't mention here, that definitely knocked a lot of the charm out of it. And uh, like Brandon, I'm also a very like old school gamer. So I, I grew up playing games when, you know, the biggest twist was Samus was a girl for Metroid. So I... 
I've always been mechanics over story. And that's something that I say a lot in a lot of my design videos, a lot of my interviews. So for me, if a game's actual playability, the UI or UX or user interface or user experience doesn't mesh right or it doesn't feel right, to me, that is kind of like the nail in the coffin. And it's kind of why I think I've really gravitated towards roguelike experiences over the past five to seven years. This idea that every run can be its own unique thing, and the story for a lot of these games just feels kind of the setup. Hey, you're going to be living, dying for the next five to ten hours of your play. Okay, and that's it. That's all you need to know. Just go and uh, keep doing it all. And I think games that kind of do things better is when the story and the, and the gameplay or the narrative in the gameplay feel like one cohesive whole. Um, I know we're going to be talking about games like uh, Disco Elysium later. 13 Sentinels sounds really fascinating. I'm, I wish it would come to PC so I can just like binge it right there. <laughs> and, and one game that I felt really did manage to bridge both narrative and gameplay really well was Hades. And Hades was one of my favorite games. And it's one of the few examples. And I think this is where I like to see kind of narrative and gameplay merge. Is that the narrative drives the gameplay. And the gameplay is inferred by the narrative. That in Hades, uh, Zagreus is immortal. Everyone is immortal. They took the whole trope of a roguelike where the world's supposed to reset. Nothing really matters. And they said, oh, yeah. Everyone remembers it. So that if you die at a boss on your previous run, they're going to make fun of you when you get back there. Or if you beat them on the last run, hey, now they're going to try and get revenge. Like, it's that idea of the narrative is not competing with the gameplay, nor is the gameplay competing with the narrative. And one of the issues that we see when it comes to this is this kind of lack of focus when it comes to UI UX. And this is something that I see from a lot of indie games that tend to go all art or all narrative versus having some element of gameplay that when I play these games, they typically have some very rough issues when it comes to just the general play of them or even just how you control and manipulate them and again it's one and this is something i mentioned in the article that i'm not sure if either a play testing was done to kind of find these issues and correct them or if play testing was done and the designer said no that kind of interferes with this vision or the mood that we want to get into this game but when the gameplay is kind of put on the back burner or it's being hurt by the cinematic or the prestige aspects, it tends to drive a lot of people out. And I've seen games that lose 40 to 60% of their player base within 30 minutes to an hour just because something annoyed them about the gameplay. Yeah, I feel like this is an interesting uh a tie back to one of the points you brought up earlier around old school gamers versus like maybe new like new newer school gamers right like what the priorities are across both mm -hmm. of them whenever they're evaluating a new video game and it's like very initial stages um i i think i differ in the sense that i'm a much more like newer gamer right i came into it much later in life i think like in college and the things that brought me more into gaming originally were the ones that were the more narrative focused ones, because that's where my natural interest kind of lied a little bit earlier on. Right. And so I, part of me wonders whether this is a bit of a, um, a, a play by the industry almost to make gaming as a whole more approachable. But I also can't tell whether the distinction of like old school gamer versus new school gamer is one that actually exists. Tristan, you're also what I would call an old school gamer, maybe uh, compared to me, it, is that maybe a reason why narrative is a bit less important to you too? I was going to say the exact same thing. Cause I, I think when I was younger, I was playing a lot of RPGs, like TRPGs cause I like the story, but now it's like, I only have 40 minutes. I want to play something. And going back to Josh's example around Hades or, you know, you know, I play a lot of team fight tactics. I don't care about the story. I just want to 
hit, get my dopamine hit, I guess, from <laughs> winning, and then I, I get out. So, um, yeah, I, I think I've definitely followed the exact track that you just mentioned. Yeah, and I was going to say, like, um, I think one of the biggest examples of that dopamine rush this year would be Vampire Survivors. Mm-hmm. That just basically says, here's 30 minutes of colorful lights and things exploding all around you. Get your fix and then go do something else. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, Vampire Survivors is, is a little too fun. And there's zero story as far as I know, right? Or, or at least I don't care. I don't know if it does. It just kind of drops you in. There's something about, I think we have to find a Dracula. I'm not sure if it's the Dracula or just a Dracula, but mm-hmm. something with vampires. <laughs> Josh, about um, Hades, did you play Returnal? I have not, but I heard that it is coming to PC, so when it does, I okay. will certainly be uh, jumping on that. Yeah, it's another uh, roguelike that completely marries what you're actually doing, like the repetition of gameplay, into the narrative in an extremely creative way. It's it's really good. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of curious. Like We've talked a little bit about the fact that this is happening more in the industry overall. Josh, you laid out uh, like relatively clearly in the AAA space. Um, God of War, Uncharted, all of those games uh, are ones that are known for relying very heavily on the narrative and with the gameplay being a fundamentally less of a focus. But those games are also like incredibly successful, right? Mm-hmm. From a from a business perspective, from an impact to the uh, industry perspective, are is that success? Do you think like a motivator for other studios to also move in that direction in a detriment? Or is that is that narrative maybe like one that's purely a narrative and not actually one that that is as prevalent as as we might be making it out to be? Um, I do think there is that push towards the cinematic or you know the prestige from the AAA space, primarily as it is a way of kind of I guess in a way it it can be a flex of a AAA suit. It's definitely one thing that as an indie you're not going to be having the budget to be pulling in, you know, yep. Hollywood actors. And again, going for these very, you know, aesthetic and graphically intensive games. And it does show, and this was something that I brought up in the article, and this is something I guess I'm curious for the three of you. Like, do you think there, like when it comes to these kinds of prestige games or this kind of focus on narrower gameplay, that it's kind of a way of like developers who I don't want to say they hate gameplay, but they tend to, I guess, look down on the, I guess, quote unquote, gaminess when it comes to video games. And this is kind of like the way of making a game that kind of like flies in the face of that. I mean, uh, as a somewhat of an example of this, when we saw Elden Ring blow up earlier in 2022 and so many like traditional developers and a lot of developers on the uh, in the United States or on the Western side, were like completely like flipping out on Twitter over how is this game doing so well? You know, there's no story, and they just <laughs> let you go off and do whatever you want, and it's just funny to watch. Yeah, that subject got, gets me pretty heated pretty fast, actually. <laughs> As, asserting that Elden Ring doesn't have a narrative is a, a, a brave statement. That's that's for sure. <laughs> like just because it's not traditional or it doesn't follow the western abc canon of like a hollywood movie doesn't mean it's lacking narrative it, you know elden ring is absolutely filled with a lot of it is you know similar to dark souls or whatever where you have mm-hmm. to hunt, hunt for the conclusion but some of the most moving moments i had this year was playing elden ring and because of what the game was actually saying, like the things that Elden Ring has to say about grief and loss and melancholy and death and like all that stuff is dynamic, or I found it more dynamic than I did in um, God of War, at least. Yeah, it was definitely a, uh, I remember there being a lot of discussion about it after Elden Ring was nominated as one of the options for best narrative anyways. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it definitely opened up questions about like, what is a traditional approach to narrative? Uh, mm-hmm. I loved God of War and Uncharted and, and all those other games, but they are definitely much more traditional fundamentally in that they are telling a story. They've got amazing voice acting and mm-hmm. they've got an amazing uh, you know, story beats themselves, whereas Elden Ring obviously has a much more... Um, it doesn't hold your hand, right? Like There is moments that can feel emotional, and they do, 
but for very different reasons. And the story itself is also told in a much more involved way than any of the other approaches, um, which it would be very interesting to see that approach be taken. And I think there are other games that have done this, like, you know, uh, this idea of building the world through the peripherals and the things you discover rather than the actual core story itself. Um, it'd be interesting to see that play out in other, other games as well. Yeah. That's similar in design to, um, famously, um, uh, the way that's what the way that Zelda games are made is, uh, their stories are always last. Um, they always develop the gameplay yep. first and then they fill out the lore and whatever they're going to do, like as the absolute last thing. And, um, that's interesting. Yeah. Not like the Zelda games are like really renowned for the story or anything, but they still have like emotional beats that really resonate with people. Um, mm-hmm. you know, the, that's the interesting. Breath, yeah. Yeah. So the timeline never makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't help that the main person also doesn't have any voice lines right. ever <laughs> did you um did you all play god of war ragnarok i did no. yeah oh. i did not i did play uh, the 2018 god of war okay yeah that's it, it's interesting adding that to this discussion is interesting because it is one of those games that felt like um it, it's very good like you, you brought it up already that you know it's polished um the acting is incredible like all, all of that but um the gameplay and the story did feel so completely at odds it at least to me it felt like two different teams um mm-hmm tackled those things um and put them together and a friend of mine brought up that he doesn't like um metroidvanias and i was like well i i would say that it's not one because it consistently locks you behind um for story and pacing and things like that like the exploration isn't natural yeah, and that that just like hurt me a little bit when you said yeah. the award <laughs> yeah. of No, it's not. It's it's just, <laughs> but it has that perspective where just because it has some puzzles and backtracking and stuff like that, it, it, it's it's still not gameplay forward, and it's still one of those games where um, they have a very specific storyline that they want to funnel you through, and they're going to mm-hmm. do that uh, no matter what. Back to your main question, Reza. Like, I feel like a lot of AAA studios are leaning into this space because it captures that casual audience. Like if I think yep. about my dad or my mom who really like watching movies and my dad really likes, I don't know, the mission impossible movies. Um, and he's like, Oh, I, I, I want to try uncharted instead. Cause it's, you know, it's action and things are happening. I guess Nathan Drake is committing genocide on hundreds <laughs> of uh, soldiers. Like I think it's a light enough, um gameplay experience where he can still have something similar to movie but he's like quote unquote interacting with it to a certain extent um yep and whereas like i I guess more quote unquote hardcore gamers tend to kind of go find their own niche afterwards and really dive deep into the genre um so i i feel like the triple a's tend to stay in that space just because they're continuing to grow their audience i also think that's a good answer to uh josh your question around like do these uh, studios maybe like look down on other kinds of video games or is that a motivation? I don't think it's that honestly. I, I really think it's just a different approach to what a video game can potentially be. Right. And I also think to Tristan's point, these kinds of video games are often opening the door for a lot of people that typically wouldn't even consider video games at all. Right. Like mm-hmm. I think I'm a prime example of this. I was not a hardcore gamer growing up and I only got my, I, I had consoles. I played them casually, but God of War 2018 for me opened the door in terms of as an adult regularly consuming this kind of content and making it a real hobby. And even though I started off in things like God of War and Uncharted, that very quickly turned into consuming more indie level games, right? Like I, I was like, oh, Celeste is really interesting. And then I was like, oh, mm-hmm. Sekiro doesn't seem like a game I would normally play, but damn, this is really, really good. And then, you know, that's kind of turned into me trying out a lot of, lot of different things. And so I think these studios recognize that there's a large audience of people that could become gamers, that could try out a much more niche style of gaming, but they're not going to make that leap right away, right? And maybe they need a little bit of hand-holding to transition to that state through something that they're more familiar with, like, you know, fundamentally narrative. Um, I think that's my angle. I don't think it's like a looking down on thing, but I'm also kind of curious to hear what other folks think about that question. Uh, Celeste is an extremely good example of what we were talking about before too, because it's gameplay is directly related to the progression of the character's story. Yep. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And yeah, I, I, I don't know if I would use it. Like, I mean, um, I have a friend that got into gaming recently. Um, she's, she's a mom, she's married. She doesn't have a lot of time. And the games that she's been playing are God of War, Red Dead Redemption, Skyrim, um, where she likes RPGs and she likes that kind of stuff. And that's where I've been where I'm like, man, I'm kind of glad that she's playing these games because it makes it easier for me to recommend um, niche and more interesting stuff that she otherwise would just bounce off completely. Like one of the things is like, I'm a big final fantasy fan. And one of, I've been thinking about this more and more is how do you get someone that doesn't like RPGs or doesn't like final fantasy or hasn't played them before? How do you even get them to start? Yeah, and you don't. Yeah. Time, right? <laughs> you really don't. It's really it's a challenge. It's it's really really hard to get mm-hmm. them. I I mean like even the perception of it, we've talked about this in the past in other in other episodes, right? Like to a lot of people, video games are still a very like gamey, kitty, like non serious activity, mm-hmm. right? And it's weird, but this proxy of telling a story through it for some reason makes it feel more serious to people to the mm-hmm. point where they then may consider those other things. It's still fundamentally wrong premise, right? Like video games are obviously not just for kids and they are like a pretty involved practice, Mm -hmm. but these newer games that are more narrative focused are fundamentally more approachable for a lot of people. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I think like we would agree that we want a world where there's almost like a balance, right? Between 50, 50 or something like that, right? Where you have these games that are very narrative focused and maybe take a little bit of a compromise on the gameplay front, but then you also want those kinds of games that are, very gameplay focused and like maybe narrative takes a backseat just because it's a fun game and it's a damn good game. Mm-hmm. Um, it'll be interesting to see how that kind of balance plays out over the next couple of years. Yeah. And I think that's a very interesting point that you just brought up about kind of like how the consumer or someone who's casual views kind of like these cinematic games. Like, like if you tell someone that the gameplay is you running around shooting zombies or demons in doom, they may view that as, you know, this, Oh, that's just some, you know, uh, popcorn flick. That's just something, you know, for the hyper adrenaline junkie. But if you tell them that it's a game starring, I don't know, uh, Patrick Stewart, and he's narrating this like epic story, or it features again like someone like William Dafoe in it, or pick like any famous actor or actress. That I wonder if that is viewed as kind of I guess like quote unquote you know mature, or it's you know yeah it's beyond than just saying oh this is Mario he runs around and jumps and goes woohoo and he saves the <laughs> princess. Yeah, it's definitely a like a perception problem, and I, I'm kind of curious. I don't know, Tristan. Do you have any thoughts on any of this stuff? Yeah, now I'm thinking about it too. It's like it's okay to play cyberpunk because it has Keanu in it, right? <laughs> you're, you're cool. Um, but I, I was, I was thinking about something else. Uh, another startup idea. I feel like these recordings always uh, ends up in startup <laughs> ideas for us. It sounds like there is a list of gateway video games for people that lead to more and more niche and convoluted video games at the end. I wonder if there's like a tutorial for video gaming where you, you know, you want to get to final fantasy, but you mm-hmm. start with God of war, right? Right. And you just keep following this chain of games until you, you become a hardcore gamer. Right. And, and that, that comes into that other conversation too, where companies are like, okay, how do we make a game in the series that's long running, but also make it appeal to a wide new audience, but also make it so our core audience doesn't hate it. Mm-hmm. And that one is also like seems to be nearly impossible um, to make. But uh, as we're seeing with other companies like um, uh, Square Enix has a game coming out called Forspoken, mm-hmm. which is Final yep. Fantasy esque, but is aimed at a very different audience. It's aimed at like a more casual, younger, like maybe Marvel Cinematic Universe style audience. And it's a game that I'm not personally interested in, but it could be a, a jumping on point for all of these people to be like, oh, maybe now I'll try out Final Fantasy, whatever, that I wasn't going to try before. Yep. Um, it is really interesting how the cinema world is having an influence on the video gaming genre as a whole. I think Forspoken was like panned uh when it when the trailers first came out because the dialogue was so marvelly for a lot of folks yeah and a lot of people were like this is just horrible but 
you know, maybe that is exactly the thing that makes it approachable for a younger audience that isn't used mm -hmm. to playing these kinds of games. I think another phenomenon that's happening a lot more recently is the overlap of video game adaptions into um, into movies and into mm -hmm. TV shows, right? Like the most recent and most successful examples are definitely Arcane, Edge Runners, but now we're seeing them turned into actual, you know, in-person TV shows with The Last of Us and with the recent update around God of War potentially becoming an Amazon Prime TV show. Mm -hmm. um, there is like a business incentive here for video games to be moving towards this to some degree, right? Like uh, the you either bring more people into your video games as a result of these TV shows, uh, or you also make money off of just licensing off this IP to be created uh, for content to be created off of. Oh, yes. Um, one of the things I was looking at when I was working on my mobile book is just how big like collaborations and spinoffs of some of these IPs can be. Like you look at stuff like uh, Arknights and Azur Lane, they have uh, albums, they have uh, respective animes. I'm sure Genshin Impact has a lot more of that either out or coming. And if, I think one of the big examples even more of that would be Fortnite. That yeah. Fortnite is just like this black hole of uh, popular culture that they have every brand you could ever imagine, every character, and there is like huge money in that. And I think to your point that it's the idea that if we hit that kind of point where we can't grow the player base anymore, at least through the game, why don't we get people hooked on this property of, what was it? Uh, I forget the name of it. Arcane from League of Legends. Mm -hmm. That a lot of people that could have been their first exposure to League of Legends. They may never even touch the game, mm -hmm. but if they're if they announce an Arcane two or some spinoff in that space, I'll bet you they're going to watch that or consume it in another way. It's really interesting how they tie back to each other. Like I remember after Edge Runners came out, which was a cyberpunk anime. Um, downloads for Cyberpunk went out off the charts again. And it was, again, <laughs> like one of the highest simultaneous players counts on Steam. Mm -hmm. uh, and it almost cleared up all of the drama that happened when Cyberpunk <laughs> was first released, right? Like people were just willing to forgive it because they made a damn good anime and it was a really mm -hmm. good piece of content. And it just, it cycles back and forth with each other, right? Um, yeah, it's like... Um for shows like the last of us show or the god of war show um whenever those come out people are always like who is this for and we, we know like ultimately it's for people who uh don't have the time or aren't interested in engaging with the video game medium but they're like oh this is a popular thing that people have talked about and at this level i can engage with it now and then yeah they, they might retroactively get into the game after that um et cetera, et cetera. But um, it, it's interesting because it's like you can't, I think for um, like the last of a show, they said some of it is going to have like material that couldn't make it into the game, mm -hmm. which that part is a lot more fascinating to me to be like, oh, we had this level of story that didn't make sense and hit the cutting room floor that we can now present to the players differently. And I guess mm -hmm. that, that may, that's a good justification for it, but yeah or like like uh, i think josh you brought up mario as like a counter example but now we have a you know yeah. mario mario movie <laughs> but mario doesn't have a recognizable story really aside from its most basic like archetype uh hits yeah and um, i'm sure we're all looking forward to hearing more of chris pratt <laughs> yeah, literally about just about to yeah. say mm -hmm. i can't wait to hear him just to make fun of him uh <laughs> it's about bad it's gonna be but it'll be fun um, there is a funny conspiracy theory. Well, I don't know if it's a conspiracy theory. It might be totally valid about the fact that Naughty Dog funded The Last of One Part One, the remake, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, because of the fact that um, there's an HBO show being made as well, right? And so mm -hmm. if the synergy of TV show being well fuels video game purchases is actually mm -hmm. there, then they make a lot more money by charging $70 for this game versus the mm -hmm. old, uh, you know, last of us uh og right. remastered which was maybe 20 bucks right mm -hmm. but then the question is like could these uh studio resources have been directed to another game and were they redirected to this purely because of the fact that they might make a lot more money off this right and i think mm -hmm. that if that is true then that points to a potentially negative 
in mm. you know change in the industry in my opinion right like yeah what well, could they have could could they have made uncharted 5 yeah totally supposedly <laughs> i mean there there's rumors of it being in the works um i don't know like uh uncharted 4 has a shockingly happy ending it does this is a really um, happy ending yeah it, 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 i enjoy it a lot I, I love that whole series but the the uncharted 4's ending seems to be a no duh of what uncharted 5 would be about um and who who it would star like a new generation like sort of a thing but yeah with with the last of us it it's it's hard not to be really cynical about it um, yeah, and I've tried not to be. I haven't even played the remake yet. I need to, but I, I was kind of shocked because I honestly thought one reason they were doing the remake was that they were going to retcon so that they could make it fit into two's big Part plot two a twist. Bit more. Yeah, but they didn't do that, which was kind of uh, incredible. They might do something like that for the show, but I don't know. Yeah, man. I'd be interesting to see. I mean, I I, I think. I'm a really big Last of Us fan. It was mm-hmm. probably one of the first games that I played where I was like, holy crap, this yeah. is like a really great story. And mm-hmm. it's not just, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's not just a video game. It's like, this is a really, really good story. Um, and even I didn't spend 70 bucks on the remake because I was <laughs> like, I'm not paying $70 for this thing. Right. Um, but I am curious to just know, like, what are the conversations being had in the industry right now about the fact that there is a paradigm here around mm-hmm. We can make content off the stuff that's not just a video game and potentially make a lot more money. Is this influencing the way that studios are thinking about future content? Are they more are they like more mm-hmm. risk averse about creating new IPs because of this? Um, I I think they, there's always been that risk averse to new IPs, and it's something that I have spent many posts and videos like rambling on about. That when you have a marketable IP it is a lot more powerful or it has a lot more of an impact compared to just putting out 10 different individual games. And to the point about, I think like studios being influenced by the success, we could certainly, I guess, like turn a spotlight to the Marvel movie machine that has kind Mm -hmm. of blew up over the past decade where we've heard stories of a lot of directors just getting really fed up working with Marvel when you can't make the movie that you want or tell the story you want to tell, that it has to fit within you know their cinematic universe and their five to ten year plan. Mm-hmm. And we've seen from the AAA space, especially when it comes to like mega franchises like Mass Effect, Final Fantasy, Call of Duty, that a lot of these studios who kind of get stuck in that machine, that they really don't have I didn't think the ability to do anything different or try and make that small scale game. And that's kind of where we've seen the independent morale really blossom over the past 10 years that a small team can make a two to five hour game that let's say if it sells 50,000 copies, that is more than a success than they could ever imagine mm-hmm. versus, you know, they still having to work on the latest Call of Duty, and if it doesn't break at least three million copies, then it's a failure, and that studio will be shunned forever. Yeah, I think the bar is in a way just getting higher and higher as to what is what constitutes a success from a business perspective mm-hmm. for these studios, and it it likely will come at a detriment to the quality of video games as a whole. Right? Like mm-hmm. maybe we over, we start over indexing on games that are that have great narratives or great traditional narratives at the cost of you know, amazing gameplay um, and indie games just are getting less of a focus potentially down the road. I don't know. That's an extreme situation, but mm-hmm. these these market uh, motives are very strong, right? And so it's kind of hard to avoid them um, when this is a this is a business at the end of the day, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess we'll have to see what happens there. These like expectations are really strange as well, though, because um, Sony will say like God of War sold this much or Last of Us sold this much or whatever. And obviously it has to meet something. And then you look at like the sales alone for um, the newest Mario Kart has sold more than (laughs) the entirety, the entirety of God of War or like just Animal Crossing since 2020 has sold more than Last of Us has sold since it was created. Pokemon, Pokemon yeah, is a great yeah, example, right? Right, and then you look at that and you're like, well, why is the quality not reflective there? <laughs> oh, so, yeah. so whatever Sony's like bottom line is, obviously, is very different 
um, in terms of like uh, cinemagraphic like video games. Um, and obviously I can't even conceive of how much money and manpower it takes to make something like the last of us two or to make one of these shows or something like that. Yep. And, uh, totally. while I was, while I was playing God of War Ragnarok, I was talking to some friends in a group chat and I was like, um, my like love for these types of games has lessened compared to my love for like, um, creative indie titles. But when I do play a game like this, I want it to feel like God of War Ragnarok because this level of just splashy, huge, impressive dramatic story can only be done on this level totally so if they're gonna use that money to make something like this anyways i would prefer it to be like this level of quality where it's like wow this was like a really cool experience i'm glad i got to have this yeah that's a totally valid point as well cool so i i think we've talked a lot about you know some of the motivators in the industry to move towards a world where maybe narrative takes a really large focus on the game potentially at the cost of gameplay um, but I think we can all think of some great examples of games that have kind of balanced these two out in a really new or unique way that, that is memorable to us. I've already called out a few, but I thought if we could maybe all just take a turn to conclusively call out some of those games that we really love um, and just go down the road. Maybe Tristan, you can start us off. Yeah, I try to tie in some of the themes that we're talking about. Um, and I, I came up with a personal example, Raza, you, you're probably going to hate me for this. But I, think- <laughs> I know. The Pokemon to Shin Megami Tensei pipeline is actually a very good example because, like, let's start with Pokemon. It, I would say, gameplay, it's all right. Um, I know some folks don't feel that way. There's a there's usually a good story um, that children will love, and then you mm-hmm. go one level lower to Persona, and you know people are mm-hmm. dying. There's mysteries to solve. Uh, the gameplay also ramps up. The RPG aspects get a bit harder, and then you go down to the SMT Shin Megami Tensei layer, and like you're killing gods and like the world is ending <laughs> and like, you know, you, you, you run into the wrong encounter and your party gets wiped. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I feel like that kind of chain of games, at least for me, have able to balance it pretty well um, across both narrative and gameplay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> did, did you like uh, SMT five? Oh, I did. Yeah. Yes. I, I loved it. I still, I feel like I think about it every day. I, I, love I need that to game. play SMT five again. Atlas, bring you the PC. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's it's honestly like it also had some issues on the Switch because it's you know the Switch is an aging hardware, but it, a very very good game. <laughs> yeah, and the, to Tristan's point about that rabbit hole going from Pokemon to uh, Shimagami, I blame Shimagami. I think for why I just can't get into Pokemon because I was. <laughs> Because I tried Pokemon back and I was like, yeah, it's cute and all that. But like the whole, like Pokemon is that one Nintendo franchise that it just kind of like I ignore. Like just never really worked mm. for me. And then I found Persona 1 on PlayStation. Mm-hmm. And then I played Shin Megami Tensei Nocturne. It was like 2001, mm-hmm. 2002. And that was like kind of like it. Like I cannot go back to Pokemon. Mm-hmm. And... I've played so many of the Shin Megami Tensei games, and it's funny that we brought Persona. Like Persona, I think for some, like I think hardcore fans, I think they kind of look down on it as you know the casualizing of Shin mm-hmm. Megami Tensei. Mm-hmm. But again, like Persona Five was just gangbusters, mm-hmm. and yeah, like I still need to replay uh, Persona Five Royale and just love that franchise of just how crazy it gets. You just like uh, to Tristan's point, like you're a high school student, then you go kill every god. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you build your, then you go kill the devil, and mm-hmm. then the world resets at some point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, Tristan, S- SMT kind of reminds me of Elden Ring in a way where it does have a really unique, deep, uh, interesting narrative, but mm-hmm. it requires a little bit from the player. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, but it's still like very rewarding experience. Brandon, you talked about 13 Sentinels um, mm-hmm. earlier in this episode, but I'm kind of curious, like what are the other games that kind of come to mind for you as like pretty notable? A big one this year was Citizen Sleeper. Mm. Um, I I, did, did any of you play that one? I have not I heard of it. Played on I the tried Switch. a little bit of it, but didn't mm-hmm. get too far into it. Yeah, it's a, it's a much smaller, it's made by one person um, indie game where um, it, it's very interesting because when I first played it, I probably would have categorized it as a visual novel with gameplay elements. But the creator of Citizen Sleeper has very aggressively said it's not a visual novel, it's an RPG. 
And it has, so it's very story forward, but uses some very light uh, TTRPG dice rolling elements. So um, the game takes place across a number of days and every day there's dice that's rolled for you. So for that day, you could have like a one, a one, a four, and a six. And whatever choices you decide to make that day, your dice are finite. So let's say something happens where you really want to make X thing succeed. So you're going to use your highest roll dice for that. And then if something else occurs that you don't really care about, you're going to use your lowest roll for that one with your modifiers. Um, And it takes place as a, you're sort of like a secondary Android unit on a space station far in the future. That's being oppressed by this like uh, working regime. That's just making everybody's lives really, really tough. But anyways, um, it's short enough where you can see a lot of different um, endings play out. Like I played it back to back and so only spent about five hours on it in order to see multiple endings but because of that unique approach to gameplay, the gameplay is so minimalistic, but it's still so fun that it just doesn't get in the way of the story whatsoever. And it, it was just like a really appealing experience that was like that perfect marriage of visual novel and RPG. Very cool. It definitely looks like Disco Elysium. Uh, yeah, it, it reminded me, it, it definitely fits in that pipeline of Disco Elysium, Kentucky Route Zero, Norco, um, where it's like, it's not quite a point and click. It's not quite an RPG, but it fits those things together really well. Very interesting. Yeah. I mm-hmm. started making my way through Disco Elysium, uh, during the Thanksgiving break a little bit. And mm-hmm. boy, does that game have some meat to it? My it's God. so good. <laughs> it, it's one of the, it's hard to be like, um, like throw around words like masterpiece or like that define the medium, but Disco Elysium is very special. Yeah, yeah, totally. I, I'm I'm literally almost always overwhelmed playing that game because mm-hmm. of how much there is to it and how much weight. Yeah, um, but it's a good game. I'm enjoying it a lot. Uh, there's a couple of others that also come to mind for me as being pretty notable. One that was already named earlier, but that I can't get enough props to, which is Hades. Yeah. Um, Hades was my very first roguelike ever. And so the bar has been set way, way too high for me. And future roguelikes <laughs> are just fundamentally disappointing in comparison. Yes. But lucky for you, great. there's a sequel coming out. I know. That was yeah. the most unexpected <laughs> part of the game awards. Their first me. ever sequel is a sequel to Hades, which is pretty sick. It's, mm-hmm. I really hope they can manage to meet the bar, at least. If they manage to top it, then mm-hmm. hell yes. But yeah, it's just a great story about family and the co- like. how complicated all of those relationships can often be. Mm-hmm. They manage to take these like otherworldly figures, but still bring them down to the basic relationship issues that everyone has with their families all of the time, the pros, the cons. Mm-hmm. And they meld it beautifully with the gameplay, right? Like it's, yeah. it, it doesn't, one never compromises the other. Um, it's a ton of fun. And it still does that same thing where it's it's asking a little bit from the player because you could make one run through that game and get, quote unquote, the ending. But to yep. actually see the end of the game, you have to put in a lot of time yeah, and do yeah. a lot of runs. There's like um, the 10 for the actual ending. And then yeah. there's, if you want <laughs> to keep going, there's another ending even after that. Mm-hmm. You just It's great. Yeah. I think I have 270 hours in that game. And so I wow. became a little obsessed. Have you played any other Supergiant games? Uh, no, not yet. We actually, uh, oh wait, I was going to say we interviewed them. We did not interview them. We tried to interview <laughs> them, but they, you know, no, but we talked about like pie. I think Tristan and I talked about okay. Pyre and a couple of yeah. other ones. They're, um, they're all like that where they're just like, they're all fantastic games, but they're all so different. Mm-hmm. Uh, from one another yeah that's what it seemed like uh that i i want to interview them so damn bad mm-hmm. because they're such a good studio mm-hmm. um, yeah uh, i spoke with greg i think it was last year or a little bit before that and yeah it was just fantastic talking to him about hades yeah they're cool <laughs> that's they're awesome cool. the other two games i want to call out one is a bit more mainstream but it takes two um mm-hmm. i think the reason why i was impressed with this the narrative is simple like it's a very simple story uh but it's not like I think I still enjoyed it. I played this with my girlfriend, and so we got some like nice fun out of it. But also from like a mechanics perspective, it is so good at just creating a mechanic, letting you play it for like 10, 15, 20 minutes, mm-hmm. and really nailing that mechanic and then throwing it out the window for like a completely new one mm-hmm. uh, in in the next level. And so like even though the game uh, bounces around a different a bunch of different environments, each of those has a different loop through it. 
and mm. all of them are really precise and polished in a really well way. Uh, and so I was impressed by that. And then the last one I'll call out is Inscription, which if anyone mm. hasn't played it, I would definitely recommend it. I need to. It's it's high on my list. I really need to play oh, it. It's good. Inscription. It's really, it's really, really good. Neat. I had no idea what the hell I was getting myself into starting it. <laughs> I was like, oh, this is just a standard game. And then it blew my mind two more times. And mm. uh, <laughs> Yeah, I don't even want to spoil it or say anything else for anyone, but definitely give it a go if you haven't played it yet. Uh, cool. Before we lose our minds with suggesting stuff, maybe you can close us off, Josh? Sure. I can. Uh, a lot of those games, I think I bring them in like the Hidden Gems article that I yeah. do or the Zeers I do every month here. Uh, I'm going to give a shout out to a game that I really love that I think deserves a lot more credit, and that's the stuff from uh, Project Moon who did a Lobami Corporation, Library Runa, and they're right now working on Limbus Company for, I believe, 2023. And what they've done is that each one of their games takes place in the same overarching world known as the city. And it's just like a mix of like dystopian, cyberpunk, just like it, we don't have the time here to like try to explain everything that's going on in this place. <laughs> But all their games are just fundamentally different, not just from a genre and a narrative standpoint, but just in terms of like what you're getting within that genre. The Bombing Corporation is a SCP management sim when you're trying to run a facility with either cute little creatures or literal gods that if they break out, they will destroy everything. And that whole story and what happens to the principal characters leads into Lobby Aruna, which if 13 Sentinels was like Tower Defense meets Visual Novel, Lobby Aruna is Deck Builder meets Visual Novel, mm. where every character you fight comes prefaced with like a 10 to 15 minute story about why they're coming to fight you, what's going on, and all the battles in that game are just completely unique. It's a deck builder where a boss fight is a seven-stage boss with every stage being completely different with its own unique rules you have to manage. And if you fail, you have to start the whole seven stages over again. It is, like, we were talking earlier about, like, games that you say, oh, it gets better at some point. Like, Library Rune is one of those games. Like, the first three to five hours is just... Yeah, it's just like you're watching the story and you put a card and that's it. And then they unlock all the deck constructions and equipment that synergizes with cards. And then you get to the actual bosses. And then suddenly the game transforms into this insane ordeal where the finale, it's it has like a good 10 to 15 hour long finale. Of, we're just going to introduce bosses that have rules that you've never seen before in the game. And this is the final, final, ultimate, final, trust me, it is the final fight, final fight in it. <laughs> and then uh, Limbus Company, which they're now trying to do a RPG gotcha match game that will be both on mobile and PC. And like everyone is still confused as to how the heck the gotcha is supposed to work in this game. And, like, the studio has just really defined themselves by saying, we don't care about genre conventions. We're just going to do whatever we want, and then you can come along for the ride if you do. And as we were talking earlier about, like, that kind of, like, cross-collaboration, I know they have, like, cafes or restaurants in, like, South Korea where you can, like, go to various places in the lobby of Runa. They have, like, some of the most beautiful music you'll ever hear in a game. And I think, like, this studio is definitely one to watch. Like, each one of their games has just been, like, orders of magnitude greater than their previous one. And I'm really, like, that's, like, my most anticipated game of 2023. Very cool. Mm. I just uh, added those games to my wish list on Steam. I <laughs> 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 need to get it out for selling them. It's, it's just really cool to see what all of these indie studios work on, right? Like that, this is really where the, the cutting edge is pushed in terms of game design and things like that. Um, it's, I mean, it's the same corollary to, to books and movies, right? Like people get into movies or books because of these mainstream items, but then sometimes they catch on to these indies. And uh, that's really where a lot of the fanatics like us uh, kind of form. 
Well, that wraps it up for this episode of the Super Jump podcast. Um, you can find all of our episodes of Super Jump on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Radio Public, Stitcher, and all of your favorite podcast directories. You can also find all Super Jump content where we honor the art and science behind video games we love at superjumpmagazine.com. Um, if you love this episode, please share it with a friend. Uh, and if you want to reach out to us with feedback or ideas, you can do so at podcast at superjumpmagazine.com. Um, I've been your host, Reza, joined by Tristan, Brandon, and Josh. Uh, see you all next time. See you later. Take care. See you, folks. <laughs>